Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Downrange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Alex Diebold. Alex is a member of the U.S. snowboard team. He's a two-time Olympian to include the 2014 bronze medal winner in snowboard cross at the Winter Games in Sochi. He qualified for the 2022 Games. And days leading up to the competition, he suffered a horrible crash where he found himself in a medically induced coma. He grew up on the East Coast. We talk a lot about what it's like going to a private boarding school, how he found himself on the national team, the highs and lows of competition, mental health, what it's like being a new father, and then a little bit of golf on the back end. I am proud to say that this episode and all other episodes throughout the remainder of the year is sponsored by Mr. Ma Golf. Mr. Ma is a brand that was created by two golf sickos that were running out of ways to fuel their addiction. They created it with one goal in mind. That was to sell cool stuff for them, their friends, and their family. Have a little bit of fun and then give back along the way. What they've focused in on is supporting injured veteran golfers. Currently, they sponsor five adaptive athletes. These athletes not only have incredible stories of perseverance, but continue to inspire others throughout their daily life. They'll be featured in various events this year, such as the U.S. Adaptive Open and the Simpsons Cup, as well as many others. You'll hear their stories and many more just like it, on this podcast later in the year. To find out more about Mr. Ma and to purchase some of their new summer line, please visit them at www.mrmagolf.com. That's www.mrmagolf.com. Follow them on Instagram at Mr. Ma Golf and get involved. Thank you again to Mason and Matt for coming on and supporting the podcast. On to Alex and his story. Enjoy. Anyway, Alex Diebolt, welcome to the podcast. Huge golf fan, friend of the program at No Laying Up, but most importantly, a member of the U.S. snowboard team. And I have so many Olympic, Olympian questions. How does this happen? How does this really take place? But to get it started, Alex, I think if we're going to ask what's your your icebreaker paragraph of who you are, what would it be? It's interesting because that icebreaker paragraph is is changing now, I think, with, with some of that therapy that we talked about earlier. Um yeah, I I am a professional snowboard professional snowboarder, Olympian. I've been on the US snowboard team for 19 years now. I race snowboard cross. For those that don't know, that's um, similar to motocross BMX. We have four to six athletes that will race through an obstacle course at the same time. Uh, top two, top three advance on until there's only four left and winner take all. It's uh a combination of, of racing and freestyle. We'll go through an obstacle course with rollers, turns, jumps. Um, no bonuses for tricks, but it's it's head-to-head battle. Um, just you know, competing competing against each other. I've been I've been really fortunate. 
I, I had a conversation with somebody on the golf course yesterday. He was a, a collegiate golfer, and he's like, man, I, I'm, I'm jealous that you chased it because I, I, I did. I chased the dream. Uh, I started snowboarding at age four when I started back 89, 90. They didn't really make snowboard boots small enough for kids. I fell in love with it right away. I, my parents don't have a competitive bone in their body. But at eight years old, there was like a, an event that came to the the mountain that we went to. And I was like, hey, mom, can I do this? And she's like, what is it? I'm like, oh, it's, it's a snowboard contest. She's like, cool. Like, where do I sign? And I won and I fell in love with competing. And it just sort of snowballed, pun intended. I, I started competing every weekend in, you know, middle school, high school. I, uh, I don't. I, I think I got lucky that I was, I was a weekend warrior. You know, I would snowboard on the weekends and, you know, uh, was able to have some, some success. I, I ended up getting recruited to go to a ski academy. Uh, I was born in Connecticut, grew up in Connecticut, um, but I got recruited to go to ski academy in Vermont, which is where my aunt and uncle and my grandparents had like a, a ski house. And so my family moved to Vermont full time. And family moved with you? Oh, no, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, not only could my parents not afford to send me to boarding school, um, but it, they didn't, my, my parents didn't really believe in it either. They didn't want somebody else, like, raising their kids. So, like, my whole family moved from Connecticut to Vermont full-time, um, and I, <laughs> it's a dream situation. Like, from, it was normal high school from, whatever, September 1st to November 15th, and November 15th, like, snowboarding skiing started and school would start at noon we would we would go on hill every day with our coaches and train from 8 a.m to 11 30 go back to school scarf lunch and then go to school from noon to 5 p.m and i was you know we had it was elite level athletics like we i started competing professionally when i was 15 um obviously this was a long time ago now but back then uh, the school that I went to had a lot of elite talent. I, when I was at the Olympics in 2014 or 2018, I think I, I there's a hundred kids in my school. We had 12 graduates that were at the Olympic games. Like it was, it was an, an elite Academy. And then, you know, as I progressed my way through my senior year, I, I was applying to college and didn't get as many acceptance letters as I was hoping. I got a few. Um, but at the same time I got a letter my senior year of high school inviting me to be part of the U.S. snowboard team. And I deferred my acceptance, and here I am 20 years later. <laughs> Still no college degree, unfortunately. But yeah, It's okay. I mean, there, there's a lot of very successful people out there that don't have a college degree. And it's, ne it's never too late to, to go back and work on it now. Exactly. I do have a 4.0 GPA. I've done some summer school, <laughs> but I've got a long way to go to finish. What, what is the process like? I mean, I think in the Northeast, it's like boarding schools and or high school prep schools, academies are like very normal. It's common, but not so much in the rest of not only the United States, but really like the world. Now, if you get into like some other, you know, countries that like have uber specific preparatory schools, like I think of Australia and they've invested a ton of not only money, but energy resources into their like Olympic prep schools to make national teams and everything else like that. So you were recruited to the Stratton mountain school and I'm guessing 
at the time, like, were you recruited to do snowboard cross or like, were you just, oh, a snowboarder and we're going to make him into whatever he is like really good at? I, I did not start in snowboard cross. So I was, I was mainly freestyle. I competed in half pipe and slope style. That was sort of what I enjoyed. That was what I learned as a kid. Um, but interestingly, when I showed up there as a sophomore, my coaches were like, cool, like you want to be a half pipe snowboarder. You want to like, you have to learn every aspect of the snowboarding, like all of the skills. So I raced gates. I did Alpine GS and slalom. Um, that was, you know, training during the week. You're going to train gates on Tuesday. You're going to train gates on Wednesday. And, and as a kid, we complained about it. I don't want to race gates. I don't want to do this. But really what they were doing is helping develop us as a complete athlete, a complete snowboarder in, in all aspects. And I chased the, this, the half pipe thing for as long as I could. I'm, I'm 6'2", so a lot, of, a lot of half pipe athletes are a, a little bit shorter. Not all of them, but um, my height and weight was an advantage in snowboard cross, and it was just another one of the disciplines. And I, I competed in all of them. I, I competed in all five disciplines while I was in high school. And I just found some success in snowboard cross. I had a couple races that went my way. I for sure got lucky. I for sure, you know, worked my ass off. And I got named the the national team for snowboard cross. And again, my parents didn't have the resources to be able to like pay for private coaching once I graduated. And like that, that is certainly a path that that a lot of athletes follow. And I was like, cool, like. I get coaching in snowboard cross. Like I'm going to dive in a thousand percent in this. And at 36 now, I'm, I'm really grateful that that was the path I went because in, in snowboard cross, you don't really, obviously there are outliers, but you don't really reach your peak until you're like late twenties, sometimes in your early thirties, you just have to develop as an athlete. And I've been really fortunate to have a long career, um, you know, competing at the, at the highest level. But I, I yeah, I, I came in, like I was going to be a call a pipe jock. I wanted to be a pipe jock. That was what I wanted. And, um, I happened to be good at, at snowboard cross and here I am all these years later. Within the different areas or specialties. Disciplines. Disciplines. Yeah. Disciplines. Thank you. Yep. Is there like rivalries or, Hey, you're, you're just one of those guys over here. You can't, you, you're not good enough to be in the half to half pipe anymore or like, are this all just like, yo, we all just ride a board. It's us versus the world because every other winter games event is, is coming for us anyway. I think when you're young, there is a bit of, um, not rivalry, but you pod, right? Like, yeah, the half pipe team, like the half pipe kids, they go to all the same events. So they create all their friends, those snowboard the border cross athletes they go to all the same events they like have their group of friends and when you're young i i certainly suffered from this for a long time of like oh, i'm not cool enough to hang out with the pipe kids anymore because i don't compete in that but as you get older and you sort of find some self-security in in your space in the world you come to realize that it's we're all out there just enjoying the same thing and there's certainly that there, there's you know in the snowboard world the snowboard community there's definitely like tight bonds and again when you're young there's a lot of rivalries with even just with alpine skiers nordic skiers oh you guys do that oh you do that there was a lot of like separation and 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 a lot of competition wow we work out harder oh we do this longer whatever and then as you get older and you start to get to know these people it's like yo we all love like this winter sports industry we love snowboarding and skiing and being outside and competing and trying to be our best and I feel really grateful that like 
all I've I've been in the industry as long as I've have because I've created a lot of friendships with athletes in other disciplines and being able to like learn about them and respect them in their unique you know all their unique aspects is is amazing but when you're young and you're just getting into it like yes there's definitely like the the pods and the 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 groups the clicks that would sort of oh yeah the freestyle kids are going to do this the racer kids are going to go do that and i struggled with that i think that was more just self confidence than anything else because now that i'm this age like the you know last last summer training camp go over to we go over to switzerland I'm like, yo, I'm going to take half a day. I'm going to go over and ride the half pipe. I know a bunch of these guys, like they're my buddies and they're over on one side of the mountain. We're on a different side. Like it's worth it to take the time to go and just connect with them. Like, yeah, I'm going to try and ride, ride the half pipe a little bit. Like, no, can I do what they can, but I can like be over here and enjoy it. And those are some, those are some of my best memories. Like thinking about like, oh yeah, that training camp, like I went and rode pipe for one day. It was so much fun. And I got to see kids I went to high school with and you know, like, yeah, there's young kids I don't know that are doing things that I can't even imagine, but I can just be there and, and, and enjoy it and be a part of that. But it takes some, you have to be willing to check your ego. Like when I show up at the top of the half pipe, like I am not even elite anymore, but I'm here and I snowboard and I love it. And like, I'm going to respect the space that people are here training, doing their thing. And like, I'm going to connect and have a good time. But you, you really have to check your ego when you show up there in that space and like, just be there because these are these these people love the same thing that you do and you share a commonality that is worth you know leaving your ego at, at the chairlift right did the boarding school have performance coaches or something like that cuz you're you're hyper focused on individual events it's it's you traveling you know you said you started competing professionally at a young age and you're, you're going out there, you're literally getting a ranking and a place or position tied to your name. And there is like not really a, a su- support system outside of like, this is my family. And like, these are all the, the friends that I ha- have at school. Yes. I, I think again, this comes with experience and, and hindsight. I, I, I did have elite coaches, right? I had three full-time snowboard coaches some of them were better at some aspects of snowboarding. Some were better at, at, at others. Um, and they acted as our like strength and conditioning coaches. And now that I'm at the highest level, like I have one strength and conditioning coach. I have one physio. I have one or two snowboard coaches that are on the hill. Um, but even, you know, at, at 15, like my snowboard coaches are like, okay, dry land, like four days a week. We're going to go, we're going to hit the gym. We're going to do this. And again, you're a kid. You're like, oh, like the top snowboard, Danny Cass, he doesn't work out. And my coach is like, cool. Like when you're as good as Danny Cass, you don't have to work out either. But until you get there, like we're hitting the weights. We're going to, you know, we're going to do adventure runs through the woods. We're going to, um, you know, do these different aspects of training. And yeah, like we, we had full, I had full-time coaches almost year round. And we trained in this, in the fall was dry land, you know, like balancing dryland training and I was on the soccer team in the spring a little bit lighter you're sort of coming out of season repairing injuries that were inevitable um but yeah it was it was full time is it a normal high school experience outside of coaching and traveling for events like would you say that it's somewhat normal or is it just your normal uh it was my normal I, d- I did my freshman year of high school at like a normal high school um I, I went from the public school system. I went to a, an all boys 
uh, Catholic school my freshman year. Um, so again, like big cultural shift from my, from my normal day-to-day life. And then to go from that into this like snowboard community, but yes, it was, it was an accredited high school. Not all of the ski academies are like that. Um, there are many ski academies out there that just have tutors that sort of teach you your curriculum from your homeschool. Um, but we had like full-time teachers, you know, year round, I had a, a history teacher, a physics teacher, all of that. And for, it was a very unique high school experience, but in the spring and fall, like, no, it was normal high school. Like you had class blocks, like, you know, your, your assignments were due. I think again, in hindsight, looking back, like the thing that we were afforded was like my senior year of high school, I did not go to a single full week of school from like December 1st to April 1st. Like I didn't spend five days in a row in the classroom. Like one of those days I was traveling somewhere or I had an event or or something and they work around that schedule. That's what makes it really unique. But even though you're traveling and you're at an event, that doesn't mean your assignment's not due. That doesn't mean that, you know, you you can skip the reading or whatever it is. But um, back then, yeah, no, it was, it was, I'll put, use air quotes. It wasn't, you know, normal high school experience as far as that aspect is concerned. How are you paying for all of it? Not, not just school, but like literally the weekly travel that you're talking about. Yeah. That's, that's another reason that, that my parents decided to move to Vermont. Like the, the, the town that I lived in Manchester, Vermont, like it doesn't have a public high school. It's again, this is over my pay grade, but the tax rules there are, are very strange and so, like, the town that my parents lived in, like, did not have a public high school in town. There was a private school that where my sister went to school, and it was $5,000 a year. I don't know what it is now, but the town paid that. So by living in town, they paid $5,000 of my tuition to this private school, um, which is part of the reason that I could afford to go there. And that wasn't all of it, but it covered, you know, most of it. And then again, like huge gratitude to my parents for the sacrifices they made to be able to pay for a lot of that stuff. Like my parents had to pay for the plane flights and the hotel rooms and the coaching, you know, like when we travel as uh, in high school, like we'll travel as a team, there's 12 of us and two coaches, like all of the fees cover my coach's airfare and my coach's hotel rooms and stuff like that. And it's, it's incredibly expensive. And the, the number of like blue collar, athletes is so dwindled at this point. I came up in a time where it was much more common, but it has become so expensive. I, I don't know. I don't understand how, how families do it. And if you look at the, like the range of talent, like it is a smaller pool because people have to have so much disposable income to, to, to pay for all of these travels and this fees and entry, all of that stuff is, the, the sacrifices that my parents made by moving up there and, and, and doing that for me is something that I will like never be able to repay. And I, I feel gratitude for my family in general. My aunts and uncles contributed financially to cover a lot of those costs. Um, it was, it is, it, it, to this day, I still, you know, like my aunt and uncle were, were very successful and I still thank them because of how they supported my family in being able to allow me to chase my dreams. As a new father now same sacrifices that you would make in a heartbeat yeah absolutely well, then that, it's that's interesting all that like, yeah when i think when i think about it now i'm like curious to see what my daughter's interest will be because i ended up here because of my own self desire my parents did not push me into competing 
they did not push me into elite athletics. They, they said like, okay, if we're going to do this and make these sacrifices, we expect you to commit. You can't be like skipping training or you can't be skipping this, but like, they didn't say like, you have to do this. You have to be an elite athlete. And so like, as a parent now, I'm like, okay, I'm curious to what my daughter's interest will be. And it'd be interesting to understand how I can navigate and support those. Were you still living with your mom and dad or are you like at school? Yeah. Nope. No, I was, I lived, my parents moved there like full time. I lived at home. Um, no, I, I was, I, there was, you know, boarding students and day students and I was just a day student. What about your sister? Upset about the move? <laughs> um, she was, my sister's six years younger than me. Um, so she was still in elementary school, I think at the time, um, I've never really asked her to be honest. Like she was so young that I don't. It's just the way that it was. It was just this. This was life. Again, we we moved to a town that we grew up going to every single weekend, every winter. So it wasn't like moving cross country to some strange land. Like right. we we already like knew the area, but it was a a big change. And yeah, she yeah she was along for the ride. <laughs> what so what's the process of like being invited? to be a member of the national team. How, do, how does it work? What, what, what even ha- happens? Interestingly, like I still remember this, I got a snail mail. I got a letter in the mail inviting me to be on the national team, um, which doesn't happen now. It's all via, <laughs> via the interwebs. But uh, now the way it works, and it, I've watched all of it evolve in front of me. Like I've watched it happen while I've lived through it. And the year I got named to the U.S. snowboard team in 2004 was the first time there was ever a snowboard cross team on the U.S. snowboard team, ever. Like, it was the inaugural U.S. snowboard team because in 2000, it had been added to the Olympic Games in 2006. So they're like, okay, we need to support this. And um, But nowadays, like, understanding the process, and, and I'm actually on the board of directors for the U.S. snowboard team and, like, supporting the way that criteria is written, especially from a youth standpoint of like there's what's called the rookie team or the development team these kids that are like very young and they're like okay they show a lot of promise and talent we're going to name them to be part of the the rookie team and they get some coaching and and stuff like that and essentially you have to achieve a certain level of result so for snowboard cross to be on the a team you have to have two podiums at at the world cup so the highest level of competition um, in a single season um, to be in the B team, you have to have two top eights on the World Cup. And obviously, there's coach's discretion. There's now, um, the way science works is something called age to rank. So if you're younger and you're ranked within a certain, you, you, you achieve a certain ranking, even though you don't have a, a World Cup podium or you don't have a top eight on the World Cup, they will invite you to be part of the team for a certain period of time to help develop you and sort of cast a wider net. Um, But essentially like to be a member of the U S snowboard team, you have to achieve a certain level of athletic excellence. And that's measured by competition results straight up. Like there are some very rare scenarios where someone might be invited onto the team do just the talent, but it's almost always like, okay, you finished in the, you know, the top 10 in the season rankings and this this event series domestically, like you're on the the rookie team now. And as I've gotten older and the, 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 you know, criteria has changed. I'm still every year, I still battle every year to, to achieve 
team status because it's it's a I'm super fortunate to have it. So post school in Vermont, you're on the national team and you move to Colorado. Uh, I graduated from high school. I got my first tax paying job. I busted my ass all summer and November 1st, I got in the car and moved to California. <laughs> okay. 18, 18 years old. I moved to Mammoth Lakes. It's, it's Northern California. It's about three hours from Reno. It was at the time, uh, it was the hub. That was where all the, the top snowboarders were based out of. Um, and to, to like, think back like, oh yeah, 18 years old, I'm going to get in the car and drive across the country and try and find a place to live. Like, I've been a, like, God, it was, I did it. I did it almost all on my own. My parents paid for my health insurance and my car insurance. Um, and they obviously were there like from a support aspect, but like it was, it was on me. Like I had to, at the time I looked through the newspaper to like find a place to live and found an apartment. And again, back then it was just new. So like the, the coaching and like the programming and all of that stuff, like I would wake up in the mornings and I would go up on the hill and I would snowboard. I wasn't like training the way that I do now, like very targeted and regimented, but um, yeah, just a, just an 18 year old kid, like moving as far across the country as he could to, to snowboard and, um, just try and make it happen. So what was the summer job? I worked as a, a bellman at a hotel. And you made enough um, that you're like, this is going to get me through who knows how long in California. Apparently <laughs> in hindsight, I guess. Yeah. Like I remember there was time periods that first year where I was like so broke that, I would like go into the base lodge and I would eat like the, the saltine crackers because they were free. I'd put honey on them. Yeah, and my, yeah. One of my other aunts found out. She's like, here, I sent you a hundred bucks for groceries, grocery money. Like you can't, you need to eat. You need to like fuel yourself. But like, I didn't, you know, I had no furniture. My mattress was on the floor. Like it was, it was, and uh, again, in hindsight, credit card debt. Like yeah. I racked up a ton of credit card debt for a decade. Every year I would get some job during the summertime, bust my ass, put away as much as I could and just like pay that credit card debt down because I wasn't funded. My, my travel as uh, on the U.S. snowboard team wasn't funded until 2013. So I spent almost 10 years just like paying for all my plane tickets and paying for a lot of my lodging, um, was that like a change in the rules or was that just based off of like your ranking within the team? It was, it was basically due to my results. Okay. I finally like achieved a, a high enough result to, to uh, receive like full funding from the team. And again, watching that change, but yeah, like I would rack up anywhere from 10 to $20,000 in credit card debt in a, in a normal season playing for paying for plane flights and equipment and, all of those things. And I think a quick thing, like I want to mention, you, you talked about Australia. They have a really powerful Olympic program, Winter Olympics. Like people don't really travel to Australia to go like snowboarding. That's not what it's known for. Um, but the, I think it's AWS, AASI, um, they are government funded. And most countries around the world are government funded that so like their national teams their coaches their travel yeah um it's not it's not blank check scenario it's not just like sweet um but in the u.s like we are entirely private funded so the u.s snowboard team the u.s olympic team receives no government funding of any kind and that's a huge disadvantage that we face um financially in in developing and and bringing up talent 
Um, and so, and a lot of yeah, people, a, a lot of people would be like, "Oh, well, why? Why does the government need or should they fund this?" Like, well, to the majority of other countries in the world, their Olympic teams and their Olympians are their like their national pillars of success in athletics. It means that much to them that they want to invest financially into the well-beings of each one of these programs. That's why. And the the U.S. government does not that, but invest money in all sorts of different things that mean nothing. And you're like, wait a second. You're, You're literally throwing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars away for this program over here when all you would have to do was you already have the structure in place, invest a little bit of that money, and these are the results in which you could display not only to your own people but to the world. It's actually phenomenal yeah, if you look at it to see like how far the Olympic program has gotten being completely privately funded. Yeah, it's... I, I do a lot of fundraising efforts for the U, the U.S. snowboard team and also the U.S. Olympic team. And one of the, the spiels in the pitch is like the um, uh, Britain, Great Britain, their cycling program is world class. Like they are the best. And I think that their annual operating budget, I'm going to get the it's It's many, many millions of dollars. Like you're talking like $12 million a year just for cycling alone and that comes from the government and they dominate they dominate the cycling you know aspect of the olympic games and we we tell people like we don't receive any of that so any donations that you can make they're they're tax deductible um fortunately and anything that you can do is is greatly appreciated but to again tie one other thing in there i think something i've learned and realized as i've gotten older when you talk about the olympic level Obviously, when you, you talk about professional sports, like you can be on the U.S. snowboard team and never go to the Olympics. But when you do go to the Olympics and you get to be a part of this, that was my dream. Like I remember being six years old, eight, I was eight years old, like watching the, the 1996 um, Olympics in, in Atlanta, Georgia, being like, that's what I want. Like, I want to go to the Olympics. I didn't know what it was, but being part of the Olympic movement is really special in it is a unique time where people come together and obviously in the last 10 years things have you know our society in general has gone through a lot of polarization and a lot of challenges and there are certainly certainly a lot of challenges with the olympic games like you <laughs> love to hear tron talk about some of the the ioc discrepancies yes. but it's uh it's it's unique in like it is amazing to watch the world come together and put a lot of things on pause and like unite around something that i believe is good athletics like sport you know like it is a unique moment as as an american you 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 feel this unique sense of um national pride like you go to the olympics and you're watching somebody compete in curling or ice hockey you've never met these people you don't know them at all and you are rooting for them with every inch of like you know i grew up in new england so i'm a huge red sox fan right like big like you're you're rooting for your sports team but like all of a sudden you are rooting for these people that you have never met and you want them to win more than anything and that sort of like 
camaraderie and the way it comes together like that is what's so special about athletics and like that moment of time where like a lot of other things sort of fade away and you get to celebrate people coming together and like I understand that there are a lot of complications behind it but there is also a lot of beauty in that yeah I completely agree and feel you know without actually being an Olympian myself like it's always cannot miss both summer and winter I, I, my household was like that. That's what it was always on the TV. We knew we read in the newspaper when things were going to be on. We picked what time of day. I remember at some point in times like missing school to watch certain events again, both summer oh, and yeah. winter. Like it, it did yeah. not matter because the, the, the meaning behind it all. So for you, and I, I don't want to brush over it, but like, you're an Olympic medalist. Like, you actually have a medal. I do. From, from the Olympics. But when, and we talk about, like, you getting on the national team in 2004 and, like, busting your tail for 10, 12 years. But when did you know, like, wow, like, I'm, I'm getting really good and I'm going to make an Olympic team. Or uh, my expectations now are to make this team again like get an olympic medal it's interesting so snowboard cross was out of the olympics in 2006 i was 19 20 you know 19 years old when those games happened like i was young and figuring out like no expectation to sort of go um but then as i developed over the next four years in the run-up to vancouver i'm like no i think i could make this i think i can like stand a chance and i came up short um it's kind of a part of my like story an important part of my story um in 2010 i would have qualified i met olympic criteria but i didn't meet our u.s criteria to be on the team because we were so we had so much talent um I would have qualified for every country other than the U.S. and Canada to go to the Olympics. Not that you've and looked into it by any means. No, 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 no. Well, <laughs> just just something I stumbled across. <laughs> uh, I I got invited by my coach to be a wax tech, service technician for my teammates. And I got to go to the Olympic Games in 2010. And I, to be a, a wax tech in snowboard cross, like, is the person that's maintaining your equipment to make it as fast as possible. We are in a race. We want our, our snowboards to be as fast as possible. And uh, it is, it's like, it's like being a caddy or um, being a bat boy. Like, you are there doing grunt work so that someone else can can do their absolute best. And it gave me a very unique insight into the back, the, the, I got to peek behind the curtain of the Olympics and I saw my teammates and I saw my competitors and my friends competing. And I was like, I can do this. Like, I know I can beat these people that are here. And it really lit a fire under my ass to like be there at the Olympics. But I was there as a staff member, like doing grunt work and like, no, this is the dream I want. Like, I want to be on the other side of this. I was, you know, on one side of the fence, and I wanted to be on the other side of it. And I, I buckled down, and I worked so much harder um, in the off season, like training physically, um, starting to get into the mental aspect of it. And uh, in the run-up, the, the season before the 2014 Olympics, I got my first World Cup podium, uh, actually at the venue where the Sochi Games were over in Russia. And I was like, okay, like, I can do this. 
And even now, like with the success that I've had, like getting a World Cup podium is so hard. And you had to get one to go to the Olympic, to, to make the U.S. Olympic team. And in the run up to 2014, I was the first, you know, U.S. athlete to, to make a World Cup podium and booked my ticket. And I think that's the hardest part. I'll be honest in like qualifying for the games, I think is harder than competing at the games because at a normal World Cup where we compete, you have anywhere from 60 to 80 men. And at the Olympics, like there's 40 maybe, you know, because the, the field size is so limited. And so from a physical aspect, competing at, competing at the Olympics is easier. Obviously, from a mental aspect, it's so much harder because the lights are way brighter. You get off that airplane when you're going to the Olympics and there's media standing outside the terminal. Like this is, we're not, I'm not, I'm not Steph Curry here. Like no one cares what my day-to-day life is. And so like all of a sudden there's like people wanting to ask you questions and interview you and, and do all these things. And it's overwhelming. It can be, it can be too much for a lot of people. And, um, one of my teammates who won Seth Westcott won two Olympic gold medals in, in 2006 and 2010. He's like, it's just another snowboard race. At the end of the day, all of the skills that are just because there's more cameras and more fans, it does not change the fact that it is still just a snowboard race. And I, I, I sort of channeled that into into my Olympic experience in, in 2014. And I think that my experience in 2010, like going and seeing it and being behind the curtain and realizing like, OK, like these lights are a lot brighter. You got to be ready for this. Um, was pivotal in my success in 2014 and being like, okay, like, you know what to expect. You're going to go out there and you're going to, you're just going to snowboard the way that you know how. And, um, I was really, really fortunate to be able to, to walk away with a bronze medal. Um, snowboard cross is incredibly fickle. Like the fastest guy rarely wins, but, um, I, I, I rode really, really well, like really, I can look back and be really happy with my athletic performance. And I can also be appreciative of the things that fell my way. Like there's luck in every aspect of life. And I kicked ass and I got lucky and I was able to to show up on the day that it mattered. What was the feeling knowing at the end, <laughs> like, holy shit, like I, I just won an Olympic medal. Um, so in snowboard cross, you start, you all start in a gate. And the gate opens all at once and you're, it's like your reaction and the way you pull out of that gate is important. And like being in that moment, it's easy to get distracted. Um, I was, I was so like present and in the moment, like not thinking about what could happen, but I came over that finish line jump. I knew I was in third place. Like, and I, I like made a pass, like the second to last turn, I made a pass from fourth into third and I was like, you have to land. There's a giant jump. It was one of the bigger jumps we had. I'm like, you got to land this. And you're like, I wrote it out. I crossed the finish line. And like, even now, like I, I think back about it, like I blacked out. Like the the feeling of of joy and of relief. Like there's a sense of relief that it's over. Um, but I, there's like, 10 to 20 seconds where like, I I don't remember at all, like just pure joy. And I think the thing that I'm proud of, and I, I think about like, I acknowledge now in my challenges of like moving forwards in the next step of my life, like I had wanted to get to that moment since I was eight or 10 years old. That was what I wanted. And I chased it and I got there. And 
it's hard to be able to explain to people what that sort of like sacrifice and dedication looks like. They all acknowledge like, oh, the sacrifice and dedication you make, but like living it and experiencing it and knowing like you're chasing this singular thing for so long when you like get ready to move on, it's not there anymore. And you're like trying to figure out what's next, but it, that feeling of crossing the line. And I I will say, I, I always acknowledge this. I crossed the finish line. I like, I don't remember. I sat down, I stopped and my teammates, the security at the Olympics is no, no joke. Um, especially in Russia, uh, they, they jumped over the barriers. They like broke through security and they, all three of my, my, my male teammates came and tackled me. They like tackled me. They celebrated me. They like pulled my snowboard off me. They put me on their shoulders. And that to me was the best moment of all of it. Not, not then, but thinking back, like they all wanted the same thing. They all wanted that medal. They all wanted to be there and they were disappointed. They were heartbroken that they worked for all those years and they didn't have that moment. And for a minute or two, like they put all of that aside and they picked me up and they celebrated me. And that was the coolest part because they were heartbroken and they could not have been more ecstatic and more excited for me in, in that moment of, of success. Did it change who you are? No, it did not. I thought that it, I always thought it would. Um, an Olympic medal is a platform to stand on. Uh, it's a key. It unlocks a lot of doors and it has afforded me so many opportunities. And you think it's going to change who you are. And it does for the first few weeks. Then the, like the post-Olympic come down happens. Like that was the highest point in my life at that point. You reach the, the summit. There's only one place to go from there, and it's down. And it hurts, and it's hard. Um, but one of the things I've come to learn that I'm, as I'm trying to identify, like, who I am as a human being outside of a snowboarder is, like, it doesn't, your successes don't define who you are as a person. You could be the best snowboarder in the world, and if you're an asshole, guess what? You're an asshole. Like, you can win all of the, the championships. You can win all of the titles in any sport there is. And if you're not good to the people around you or you don't care, you know, like it, it does not replace people will try and use it as an exception. Like, Oh, I can, I can treat these people a certain way because I, you know, I'm four time NBA champion. Like, no, that's not how it works. Like, I don't care how many things you've won. You still, I believe you still need to to treat people with kindness and respect in, in every aspect of your life. And, um, it did not, it changed the opportunities that I have, but it did not change me as a person. I'm sure probably a little bit of subconscious change in expectations in yourself moving forward. Not well, <laughs> I can say that. Um, for us, the Olympics are, that's, that's it. Like we, I compete on a World Cup circuit year in, year out, achieving World Cup podiums, World Championships, like all of these races is a big deal. But like the measuring stick is the Olympics. And like I have teammates that have way more success than I've ever had, but they don't have an Olympic medal. And so you think that like you think it's going to make other aspects of your life better and it doesn't um, in the so 2014 podiumed then like in this, you know, in the four year cycle in between, I had a, quite a bit of success. 2017, 2016, 2017, that season was the most successful year of my athletic career. I had four World Cup podiums. Like I was firing on all cylinders. I was healthy. 
And so going into the 2018 games, I'm like, no, I'm going. Like, I'm, I'm punching my ticket to another games. And I was so I, – I finished fourth at a race, and you, you had to be in the top three. And I finished fourth at a race, and I went to the 2018 games as an alternate. And that, that was the hardest – that was a really hard pill to swallow. Um, so – the expectations was like, no, like the season before, like I'm firing, I'm doing everything right. Like I just need to keep doing what I'm doing and I'll get there and I'll do it again. And as an elite athlete, like if you just keep doing what you're doing, you're, you're missing progression. You're always, we, we, the joke is marginal gains. You get, you're trying to get 1% better. If you're just trying to stay, I'm just trying to do all the same things that I did last year because I was successful and it worked. But you, you have to constantly figure out, like, how can I push it an inch farther or a foot farther or whatever? And I, I came up so painfully short. And I looked back upon it after the games and realized that was why. Like, oh, I, I wasn't trying. I didn't work as hard as I could have because I thought everything that I was doing was right. And so in the, the years that followed, like, that, that hung over me. Um, after 2018, um, again, had some success, like had some World Cup podiums. But again, I mentioned I took a corporate job with one of my sponsors and it was sort of my like exit strategy and um, life happens, uh, changes happen to the company. And like, I was still competitive, the pandemic happened. And I was like, okay, like maybe I'm going to try and go to the, you know, 2022 games in Beijing and um, left the company and, uh, and interestingly, like looking back in like the, the history of my athletic career, the dedication and hard work I put in last year to get ready for the 2020, 2022 games in Beijing was the hardest I've ever worked in my life because I'd achieved the success. I knew that I was capable of going to the games. Then I came up painfully short. I went to the 2018 games as an alternate, like I was warming the bench in case someone got hurt. Um, I used all of that fuel and all of that fire and that experience. And I worked as hard as I've ever worked, um, last year to, uh, to qualify for the 2022 games. And I did it. Like I, I qualified, I, I became an, you know, a two-time Olympian and, um, that story also changes. That's another part of my, my, my spiel. Um, but yeah, like I won a medal. I expected things to be different and they don't get easier. They get harder because now you have a bigger target on your back. And you, there's a lot of self-belief. I know I'm capable. I know it's possible. I think that's, as an, as an elite athlete, that's one thing, like that self-belief. You can believe in yourself, but until you actually do it, there's always that sliver of, of doubt and question in there. I knew I could. Um, but it, you know, it, didn't, it made things harder. Expectations from myself and expectations from those around me all increased. Do you want to talk about the most recent games? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I think it's an important. So I, I qualified for the 2022 games, Beijing, China. Um, like the joy and elation I felt for qualifying for that team is, is hard to sum up. And the way the games are scheduled, like they happen on a certain time in February every year. And Beijing moved theirs a week earlier. So the way that our qualifying process, you have to meet criteria that changed, that got moved, and they had to name our team at a certain time period. Um, but our schedule continues. Like you think about 
in golf, the Olympic Games, like there's a tournament the week before. Yep. Guys who go in the Olympics, sometimes they'll skip it, sometimes they won't. Um, we have so few competition opportunities to like really test yourself at the highest level. We had a World Cup uh, the week the weekend before we were leaving for the games. We were leaving for Beijing on um, on a Monday, and Saturday morning we had uh, an Olymp or a World Cup event in in Italy. Everyone was there, all of the top talent, all of the best athletes. I think people have realized people used to put themselves on ice and like take an event off to like save themselves so they didn't get hurt or injured. And they realized that that's not how you, that's not how you reach the peak. You, you like lose that subtle edge. And at the last, last world cup event in our qualifying run, we take two qualifying runs before an event to seed us in the bracket. And in my first qualifying run, I made a small mistake and I, I skipped off a roller and I knocked myself unconscious and, and had a, a, a traumatic brain injury, TBI. Um, Hold on and, a second, because you, you identified yeah. it. And what was the mistake? Um, I will be honest, because I had a brain injury, I I don't really remember. Um, well, you've looked back at video and everything else. Yes. Uh, the the best I can put together, like I don't I don't remember anything from that day at all. Like I don't remember breakfast. I don't remember warm up or training. But watching the video. Um, you're always trying to get faster. And the event that we were competing in Italy was really unique that it was a night race. So it was going to take place under the lights, which is very rare for us. It's happened like three or four times in my entire career. So the day prior, we had training in the morning, like during the day, like a normal training time. And then we had night training and it was, it was pretty warm. So we had like night training the night prior and then it got cold overnight and the snow refroze and got firmer and faster. So the next day we had qualifying in the morning and racing at night. So we trained until 10 p.m. Then we had qualifying the next day at 9.30 a.m. And the best I can I can gander is that when it gets faster like that, you're constantly looking for the the tightest margins. And when my speeding, I, I basically went over this roller pack with these like four rollers in a row. And I was trying to pump the first roller and what I believe is that the snow was a little bit faster. I'm going to talk about green speed related to golf. Like the greens were just a little bit faster. And I just, I went just a tiny bit too high over this roller. And I was going somewhere in the range of like 25 to 30 miles an hour. And you're looking for like inches. You, the, 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 the space is so small and it was just the tiniest mistake. And um, I think that because the snow had frozen and gotten faster the night before. I just like aired over this roller a little bit too much. And honestly, like watching the video after the fact, like I've definitely taken worse crashes before, like way worse crashes. I look at it. I'm like, Oh, that's not that big a deal. But when the snow is firm like that and you know, like you talking about marginal gains, like the way that I crashed, I hit the ups, the up face, like the rollers go up and down. I hit just the up face of the roller with the back of my head, wearing a helmet, obviously, just enough that um, I had two brain bleeds. Um, and it's funny, I watched with my teammates not too long, like recently, they're like, oh, I want to see that footage again. If I had gone, if I had like skipped off this one roller and the one that I hit, if I had gone another probably two feet, like so, such a small space in the grand scheme of things, I probably would have just like slid out and like, I would, I would have been sore. Like I probably would, would have been, but I would not have like whiplashed and like my head hit the, hit the snow at 
G-forces that I'm on. I don't know. And if I'd gone just a tiny bit farther, I probably would have been totally fine. And uh, I woke up two days later in the hospital. My wife, who was seven months pregnant, was sitting next to me. And uh, I was in a medically induced coma for 24 hours while they, they monitored my brain. Again, I had two brain bleeds. They're just like monitoring swelling. And I wake up and I like look over and I see her there. And I'm groggy and out of it. And uh, I'm like, babe, like, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, you had a pretty big cash, uh, crash. I like look around. I'm like wires coming everywhere tubes coming out of my neck i'm like yeah clearly and i'm like are, are you okay like what are you why are you here and she's like no i'm pretty worried about you i was like what day is it she's like it's uh it's monday night sweetie and i'm like huh it's like i'm probably not going to the olympics huh and she's like no like you're definitely not going to the olympics and i passed back out and went back to sleep wow um but yeah i I, uh, I, I crashed two days before I was set to leave for, for opening ceremonies of the Olympics and, um, didn't get to go like, and that is, you want to talk about cookie jars and like unpacking things. Like I'm going to be unpacking like the, the scar tissue from that for a really long time. Cause I don't have the, I don't, I currently, I'm not over it. Like it's, this was months ago at this point. Um, a lot in my life has changed. I'm now a parent and, you know, all of these things, like it's, it's really, really, really hard to, to understand. I've come to terms with it. Life happens. Like I, I chose to do something that's incredibly dangerous. I have no regrets. I don't have any like, what about, what about ism, but I, uh, it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking and disappointing and just understanding like how to, accept it i've accept i've ex i don't know i don't know what the right it's like i i haven't found the fix yet like we were talking about like i'm i'm dealing with it but i haven't found the fix and so um i in all of it i'm incredibly grateful because i broke my back i damaged my knee i hurt my wrist and obviously messed up my head um six days later i walked out of the hospital on my own two feet didn't have to have surgery didn't have to have anything like certainly like putting those puzzle pieces of my body back together. But the fact that like I could walk out of the hospital on my own two feet, like so, so grateful. And again, like a couple months later becoming a parent, like if I had had to have knee surgery, like how am I going to help take care of my, help my wife take care of my kid when I can't walk? Um, so it sucks and it's, it, it's a tough pill to swallow. But at the end of the day, like I'm so lucky that even even in my head injury, which was the worst I've ever had, I've had friends that have had worse TBIs, and all for all intents and purposes, like I'm as healthy as I could be, and I'm incredibly grateful that that I'm here now, because it's not always the case. Is the drive still there? Yes, for sure. Like in all aspects of my life, like I I've learned that I am just a competitive human being. You want to go out? We we could. I mean, maybe we'll have to mention when we're getting ready to wrap. We'll talk about a, a match that you and I oh, have yeah. on the books for later this year. Um, I'm I'm incredibly competitive in everything that I do, and um, the drive to be the best that I can be is still there. I'm still in the gym. I'm still training. I'm still named to the U.S. snowboard team. I plan on competing this coming winter. Um, to what regard? I I haven't really decided yet. Like I'm you know, maybe on my farewell tour, as we'll call it, like just want to go do a few of my, go to my favorite venues and um, 
do do some of the events that I love and sort of tie a bow in my career and in my own my own way. But as far as like that desire deep down, like no, like I love I love the grind. I love to work hard. I love to like just try and be the best version of myself and how I figure out what that's going to look like in the future. Maybe it's on the golf course. You know, I've, I've constantly got a handicap that I can look at and see if it's going up or down. Um, for a long time, I've done it with snowboarding, but no, the drive, the fire to just like be the best version of, of who I am is for sure there. That fire is not dimmed down at all. It's incredible. There's not a lot of people that would have the courage, I guess, to get back up on the horse and continue to go at it. It's scary. I'm not going to lie and pretend that I'm not like scared to get back in the gate. Like there's something is different in my life. I mean, could be that, that dose of perspective that the boys like to talk about with a new kid, you know, like that perspective. Um, but also like understanding, like my brain is never going to be the same ever again. And so if I hit it, hit it again, like something different could happen. So there's that, there's that fear for sure. My teammates are all in France right now training at a, at a, at a training camp over there on snow. And I decided that I didn't want to go and do that. Like, I just want time to like heal and get back to a good headspace where I'm excited to get back out there and like, hang, you got to hang it out there. If you want to win, you have to be willing to ride the, the finest of lines. And you're on one side, your results aren't that good. And when you're on the other side, you wake up in the hospital. So you have to be willing to, to come as close as that line as you can. And I know that I'll get back there, but there's for sure, there's there, there's a new sense of fear that's out there. So good. Dad life. You're a, a new father, a three-month-old little girl. How is it going? Very new father. It is, uh, it's as life-changing as they all say it is. It's interesting, you know, being of that age now where all of my friends are having kids and you, you hear the talk, you hear the conversations, and you really don't understand it until you're in it, until you're like really living it. And, you know, I've wanted to be a parent and you hear a lot of the conversations. It's different when it's yours, yada, yada. And then it happens. And it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done for sure. And those small moments of like pure joy are undescribable. Like that's, that's what I'm learning is, is those like magic small moments where they smile at you for the first time or they're happy and they're laughing. Like the way that it warms your heart is not something that I can explain to other people. You know, I think everybody dreams and envisions themselves as a parent. You're either firmly in the bucket of like, one day I'm going to have kids and this is what I envision myself as a father or as a mother being like. And then there's other people in the opposite bucket who are like, yo, I, I'm not meant for this. It's something that I do not want. For me, I've always, of course, wanted children, look forward to having children. And me and my wife, we waited a, a while to have them because we wanted to be in a good spot in our life to be able to not only spend time with them, but like provide. I think the basic, yeah, the, the basic things that like that you want for every child to be able to provide things that you didn't have in your life, to be able to spend the maximum amount of time possible with them. And I think it's one of those things that in the beginning, I remember when the twins were first born and leaving for the first time and they weren't like 
in daycare yet, and I had extreme guilt. And then as it goes a couple months, a couple years, you realize like, wow, I, I still need to be like me. We still need to be us in our, our couple, me and my wife. And you yep. need those moments away. So it's very interesting to see where you're at in this, the, the newly minted three month journey where there are all these new things happening day by day that are like earth shattering. And, and if you take yeah. a step back, you're like, that's uh, amazing. But also are you guys taking care of yourselves? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly hard. And I think, you know, again, sort of same, same boat, like wanted to wait until I was a little bit older uh, to, to start down this parenthood path. And interestingly, like hearing you talk about it, I think as I've gotten older and watched a lot of my friends have kids, when I was younger, I was always like, yeah, I'm going to be a dad someday. Yep. Like that's just a given. Like I want to have a family. I want to do that. And then as I got older and watched friends have kids and sort of started to experience it from the periphery, I'm like, yeah, you know, like, I think this is something that I really want, but it was never like a, it was never like a very hard line in the sand. And I think that some of that comes with the fact of like, and I, you know, hearing you speak about it in, in your, your marriage, having kids is, is hard, like, become, you know, like for women to become pregnant is really, really challenging. And there are a lot of like complications that can come along with that. And so I, I think I, I reached a point in my life where like, yeah, you know, this is something that I would really like to do. And it's also not guaranteed. It's not for sure going to happen. I'm not absolutely going to like, you know, do all of these things, but it's something I'd like to have happen. And now, you know, now that I'm in it, like, I think a word you have used a lot is, is gratitude, just like grateful that my wife is healthy, my daughter is healthy, and we're here. But in that, like being, being older and like watching it, watching it happen and just understanding the way the world works, um, and having been through, you know, the challenges of marriage, uh, taking time to like be us, to be like partners in this in this marriage, is just starting to like show its its face. Like, okay, like we have to set aside time for us. We have to create space where we can be humans. We can be. I can still be Alex. My wife can still be herself. Um, we can show up for each other in the ways that we would as a spouse. And I think that it's, it's hard to understand that as you're constantly stepping over these new challenges of like, how do I show up as a parent, as a father or as a mother? Um, but I will like, I, I am cognizant and setting aside time to understand like, how can I show up as myself, as Alex? Like, how can I give my wife space to show up as herself, how she wants to? Um, and it's, I think it's just like one of the, it's just one of the unique challenges of, of parenthood. And again, being older, watching, like seeing some of my friends that are a little older than me have kids, like when their kids are like three, four or five years old, watching them like, oh yeah, we're going out to a show tonight. Oh, we're going camping this weekend. I'm like, oh, like you're still, you're still my buddy, Jeff. You're still my coach, Jeff. Like you still like to go ride your bike and do those things. Like you're, you don't all of a sudden just instantly change as a human being. You still need to be able to show up for who you are. And I think people navigate that in different ways. It, it, it's incredibly challenging, 
Um, but it's something that I am like cognizant of and, and something I want to make an effort to like save time for myself, have, you know, help my, my wife save time for her and then, you know, show up as a parent in, in whatever way that, that that's going to take shape. It's amazing. I think the number one thing that switched in my mind and, and looking back on it now, I, I hate to admit this. There's no way in my early to mid twenties that I was, I might've told myself that like I want to be a parent but the fact of like I was that guy who when you get on an airplane and there's like a crying baby you're like man this kind of like stinks like I want (laughs) to I want to watch this movie and like you know think about like me and like oh I'm sure all these other people around me are like kind of annoyed by it too you have no clue until you're in that that person's position in life when all you're like, man, this baby, the ears won't clear. There's, they're hungry. They're tired and fussy because like they don't, they're super exhausted, but they, for some reason they won't go to sleep. It's amazing. I don't understand kids at yes. all on that side of it. Like the more exhausted you get, the less sleep that you want to get, which should be the opposite. Yeah. And when it finally switched for me, it was like, man, like obviously I'm way more empathetic and like I turned around and was like, can I, can I help you? Is there anything that I can do? Like, I'm not a parent yet, but like, it feels like I, this is where I need to be in, in my life. And that's when I think we're, we finally made the decision that we're like, you know what, we're, we're ready for this. I, I've, I've gone through, uh, I spend a lot of time on airplanes and I've gone through the same switch in my mind in seeing parents in the airport. And I think it, it happened when all my friends started having kids and I was spending time around little babies um, of just being like, you know what? Like, this is, th- th- I can't imagine how hard this is for you. Can I help you put your bags in the overhead? Do you want to get on the plane before me? Like, I'm very much a like, you know, go, 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 go on the plane, get my si- situation set up. And then you see some kid like having a meltdown and you're like, hey, like, can I help you? You know, like, <laughs> All you can do is your best, yep. and if if your community, if if the people around you can offer support, um, and that's interesting to think about, like that being an internal switch for myself. But like just looking around me and be like, yeah, you know, let me help you out with with whatever it is. It seems like every, patience. This, this, yeah, not only patience, but the the rat race of life. You don't realize that we're like all trying to do the same thing. People just have other tools and, and obstacles and things thrown in their way that like they ultimately like they're just we're all just trying to make it man like that's that's the bottom line what do you think no go ahead i was i was going to use that sort of as a as a quick pivot sort of step off i want to say is you know someone that sort of watched you grow into your own now um the work that you've talking about overcoming obstacles watching the support that you've put out there for adaptive golfers um, sort of in that, I, I don't know a ton. I don't know if they're all sort of, um, post-military in the, in their, like, in that, that adaptive field. Um, I've, I've been really fortunate to spend a lot of time with Paralympians and, um, it's amazing in the same way where you're like, when you're young and you don't, you know, you don't have those relationships and you haven't met those people where they're overcoming obstacles. And at the end of the day, my friends on the Paralympic team, like, 
They want to do, you know, like they want to have the same experience as I do. Hey, let's go ride bikes. Okay. Like how can we make that happen? Hey, I want to go skate. I want to do X, Y, or Z. And whether you're looking at that as like parents, you know, overcoming the challenges of getting on a plane or friends that are, you know, missing limbs, like it doesn't, it doesn't like being able to, to have patience and empathy and trying to be inclusive to those people is so rewarding and it just like helps you see the world in a different way. And so I, I just, it's something I've, I've watched you do recently and I really admire it and respect it. I think it's uh, for me, it's something that like, it, it fills my bucket. Like, it, it, and like, I, I don't want to say that it's like purely selfish of me because I, I do think that there are amazing stories that need to be told and like the spotlight needs to be placed on all of these individuals. And in the adaptive world, specifically in golf, I say like the military veteran side of it is a very small percentage of that world. The majority of them very are, small. yeah, are, are, are people who either were born that way or had some, something happen throughout their childhood. And it's amazing because you'll meet people who, I met a guy the other day that's like 57 years old. He's been blind since he's like two years old, shooting in the low 80s high 70s and you're like how is how is this possible because like how is this possible i'm i'm struggling out there and like i'm of course seeing all this and he's like yeah but like i can see in other ways like it's it's easy you know i have a partner here who will help line me up he's like i i feel way more than you do and he's like i know that's weird to say but i'm like i i totally totally get it but it's amazing uh, specifically some of the, the amputees and the, their golf swings. It doesn't matter if it's legs or arms or my one friend, Nick, who, who literally, it, he, he just has one arm. He has, he's a double leg amputee and a single arm amputee. And the, the amount of like power and like the specimen of an athlete that he can still create that movement with, you know, the, the tools that he has left now, it, it's phenomenal. And you're like, wait a second, from an, from an athlete point of view, why are we not like highlighting the shit out of this? Because that is absolutely a phenomenal, not just like feat of something to do, but ultimately working towards mastering it, which is what we're all like trying to do. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And it's, it's incredibly inspiring. Yeah. It's like spending you don't even have to play golf with them. Most of the time you just sit around and talk to them and you're just like, wow, like, okay, you got, you, you figuring something out about life that like I could use a lot more of in my life. And it's like, just, it's so motivating. I think the, the military side of it and the veterans, like we have our own, like we, we deal with a ton of, of dark stuff. And it's, again, I'll go back to your experiences and it's very much, similarities between like professional athletes and in the military. Like we all talk about like the, of course, like the greatest highs of success and everything else. But like, you don't realize like 99.9% of the other times we're talking about like horrible defeats and traumatic events and scars, not just physically, but more emotionally and definitely mentally that we're all wrestling with. Day in and day out. It doesn't matter what your background is or what you've experienced. Like 
every single person has those and, and you, you're just trying to grapple with it to, to live your life. Yeah, it's, I'll take a moment real quick and, and plug. I, when, you know, when you and I started chatting about this, I actually went back and listened to your, your sort of introductory episode, um, the first episode in, in the series. And it was, it was amazing to sort of like listen to it intentionally knowing that you and I were going to have a conversation to understand what some of those similarities were. And I think like one of the things I, you know, like really struck, struck me is like some of the similarities between being an elite ranger and an elite athlete that you spoke about that, that hit home for me is like some of the, the selfishness that's required to create excellence of yourself. I think that that's something that I've like reflected upon now as I'm, I'm, getting ready to transition out of athletics full-time, like looking back and, and realizing the amount of time and effort you spend on yourself to try and be your best. That is, uh, you can move that from, from any, any field that there is, but I, you know, some of the other things I thought about, like I was constantly, you know, constantly told I was the best. Like you talked about that, like I'm an Olympic athlete, you know, like, when I transitioned, you know, I spent, I spent a few years working in the corporate world for one of my sponsors and it was amazing how you transitioned. You know, I was working in like the marketing space. There's, you, you can't, you can't tell who's the best marketer on the planet. Right. You can't like, there's not like a, a rank and file, like sure, maybe in like the sales industry, you can, can compare conversions and stuff like that, but it's, it's not the same. And in, in athletics, like you're constantly like, there's a mark, there's a line, there's a winner and there's a loser. I crossed that finish line. I'm 10th on today. I've, yeah. you know, when I was working, like I finish a project, like, am I, is this the 10th best project in the company? Like I have no idea. And, and coming to terms with that sort of transition and that challenge is something that I, I think I'm, I'm continuing to struggle with. I think I have more, uh, perception of it now and I can check myself. But like when I first got into that, it was, it was incredibly challenging. And so I'm curious, to, you know, to hear from your side, like, in in more of a conversational space, like, what are some of the the similarities that you see between, you know, being at the top of in your military career and elite athletics? They run not just like parallels to each other, but I think they're hand in hand because at the end of the day, like, from a military standpoint, I think we would all say that we are striving to be the best athlete that we possibly can be. It just is different athletics instead of moving down a mountain as fast as you can be. And in your case, it's, or picking up a barbell. Those are all things to, to increase our overall performance. It is being able to move and communicate while handling tools. And in my, I, I always refer to them as tools, it doesn't matter for me if it's a vehicle, if it's a gun, if it's a parachute. I've uh, have been afforded an incredible, you know, incredible opportunities in my life to get my hands on a ton of different tools to get me out of situations, to figure out what the best outcome is, and then you know do backwards planning from that and and train your body to be able to accomplish that, and then. Like, really, I would say where it kind of 
breaks apart is that I would know at the end of the day that my teammates were always there, no matter what, to have my back. And that's yeah. not the case in all all of the military. There's like, you know, the military gets, uh, it, it is applauded and there's phenomenal people out there that do amazing things. But there's also like people out there that are completely looking out for themselves. And I've, I've been very, very lucky to not be in organizations where those people are a part of. And I think we have selections and training to intentionally weed those people out on the physical side before we even get into any like the psychological evaluations or hiring processes that you would have to do, which are more educational or or curricular to get them out of the way. So at the end of the day, I knew that like truly like I had my band of brothers. I knew that no matter what happened, if I failed at this one specific task, that there was somebody behind me that would be able to pick it up and, and continue on. I think transitioning, and my transition has been very easy, but also like very difficult. And I would say that like last year, it was just like a breeze. I, I went through the first like nine months being like, this is, I don't understand what people are like having a hard time with. Like, this is amazing. I have found myself in an incredible job. I have great friends. I have an incredible support system who's there to help me with whatever I need. And then slowly you start to realize like, wait a second, like, am I, am I actually like really happy or am I just like this fake facade of, I'm just telling myself this stuff. And and I think it, it goes back to the people that are closest to you again and telling me like, hey, like you realize that there's a lot of work like you still have to do, right? Like you used to be on top of going to counseling and therapy and, and everything else. And for some reason you've stopped doing that. And you might not want to admit it, but you're not sleeping at night. Like you're you're tossing and turning. You're having nightmares again. And that's just the, the, the things that I am seeing out front. I don't know what's going on inside of you, uh, yeah. but there's, there's things that you, you know how to fix and how to maybe not fix, but how to control and maintain that you're not, not doing that you need to start doing again or else you're going to start to spiral. I think, I think that the, the, the key term in there is like fix. Right. Like you it's I think fixing things is a lot harder than it is controlling them. And it's when you spoke about that, it's interesting because my transition out of athletics has sort of been gradual. I mean, I'm really fortunate. And when I took a a corporate job, I did it by choice. It wasn't because I wasn't competitive. It wasn't because I was hurt. You know, in a lot of these fields, like people are either they get hurt and they're forced to retire or they're just like, don't cut it anymore. And I decided to like make that choice. And so, but I did it very slowly. So that transition wasn't like overnight. It wasn't like one day I'm like, okay, I'm not on the US snowboard team anymore. And when you talk about how like right when you got out, you felt pretty good. I got great friends. I got this job, like these things around me. It sort of takes a while for some of that like weight to settle in. And like, it, I think it's self-acceptance. I think it's, it just takes time and patience 
uh, to, to come into that, like that realization that like things are like, things are different now. You might not be different, but life is different now. And coming to terms with that is, I think it's harder for some people than others. And mine has been very drawn out and it was, it was painful. I didn't, I didn't get help early enough. And I wish that I had, like, I'll, I'll shout out, like seeing therapists, you know, like, I, I think it's sometimes hard to talk about as men. Like, I am so happy to have a therapist and be in that. And I put it off for two years, year and a half, started to dig in, do some work, felt better, stopped going to therapy. My wife came to me and she's like, hey, like, I think you you might need to, like, talk to somebody. Like, I'm starting to see, you know, some some challenges. And even after I had done it once, I was still resistant to, like, find a new therapist and get back into it. And I'm there again. I'm really grateful to, like, have that that tool at my disposal and it has been it's been so important for me to to what you're talking what you you mentioned like i've i've been coping i've been like handling these problems it's the word i use all the time it's so it's so bad it's so bad like just because you're coping with something doesn't mean that like you're you're not you're not doing anything to not only like fix it but like bro you're like not even addressing it the, the analogy that I've, I've used and I think come to terms with is like, for me, it's, it's a cookie jar. I, as an, as an elite athlete, you have to compartmentalize like a mofo. I'm at an, I'm at an event, I'm at a race. Like I have to focus all the problems with my partner, my friends, my family, those go in the cookie jar, they go in the cabinet because I have to focus on what's in front of me right now. And then afterwards you like get through it and you're like, okay, it's pretty easy to not go into that cabinet and look in that cookie jar again. And after I've been on this, I've been competing professionally for 20 years. It's that, that cabinet is full. Those cookie jars started falling out. And my wife is like, yo, you need to deal with some of these things. And it was so easy to just like put them to the side and like maybe clean up some crumbs here and there, but like to really actually go in and open those cookie jars and realize all of that stuff that I've been putting away for so long is that's coping. Coping is cleaning up those crumbs that are on the counter, but like trying to fix it is like opening that cabinet, opening those up and being like, what was I like hiding from all of that time? Cause it's easy to hide behind the, your profession. You know, for me, it was as being an athlete, like, yep, this is it. I'm good. But like all those things are kind of looming back there. And now, now it's time to like open that cabinet and go through some of those because I can cope with them, but I can't fix them unless I open them up and, and address them. Yeah. And we talked about like therapy and I completely agree with you. And I know that you've used the gym and getting yourself fit for performance and being an elite athlete. But you've also talked in length before about the use of yoga and meditation and all other things that in like previous lives, people would be like, oh, what are you doing, man? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. But exactly. now, now as you talk about therapies, not just going and sitting down and talking to something, talking to someone, are there other things that you've started to add into your routine that help with it? I, I think touching, ba- like meditation is a perfect example. I, when I was younger, man, it was, I was like, what is this? This is hocus pocus stuff. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to sit here and breathe and like BS. Like, that was total bullshit to me. 
And then I, I, I waded into those waters, you know, through a, through an avenue. And I was like, whoa, this, this stuff actually works. And I think it's similar to like the physical aspects. I felt better. I felt good. And I sort of started to step away from meditation. And again, like as I, as I get ready to like transition out of athletics and I'm, I'm looking <laughs> through that cabinet and I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm not really doing that good it's, it's hard to step back into that space of like, okay, I'm going to set aside five minutes every morning. I'm going to sit, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to breathe. And like, it's hard to quantify or explain like how it helps. But for me, it's like, if it's, even if it's just five minutes a day, like just sit with your thoughts, you don't have to understand them. You don't, you just have to acknowledge this stuff. Yeah. It's, I, again, like put off therapy. I was like, oh, I'm good. I feel great. And all of a sudden you don't really feel that great. And it's, sometimes it's hard to step back in. Same thing with meditation. Um, I've, I've started to, to set aside some time again now. And I, 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 as, as whatever, an extreme sports athlete, like winter athlete, like a male, no, I don't need that stuff. Like, what is, what is this like meditation BS? No, it, it helps. It helps me. And I'm, I'm grateful to, for the people around me that were like other men in my life, like, Hey, like, why don't you try this out? I'm like, okay, I'm going to wade back in. And I guess I, one other thing I'll say, like another, it might be a coping mechanism, but it's something that like makes me feel good inside is as a snowboard athlete, I think we are constantly stereotyped as being stoners and lazy and you know even within the winter sports space in comparison to some of my like alpine ski friend athletes like i find physical exercise to be such a key to my mental health and i think some one of the th like I've, I've learned that sometime i use it as a coping mechanism and when i can acknowledge and create space to just like let it be what it is now as a new parent finding myself having a lot less free time. Like, how can I prioritize my time to be like, okay, like I'm in a shitty mood today. Why is that? Okay, I haven't exercised in two days. Like, I'm going to go for a run. I hate running. Not not a big run guy. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to lace them up. I'm going to start running again. And it's like, okay, 30 minutes going out for a quick run, doing a quick workout. It's not what I'm used to as an elite level athlete. It's not the three hours in the gym that I that I used to get but it is something that I'm doing to take care of myself and understanding that I'm using it to take care of myself mentally is something that I feel really grateful for. I I've had some friends that have slipped into that have used coping mechanisms in drugs and alcohol and some of those other sort of vices, if you, if you will. Um, I feel really grateful that like my outlet is, is exercise. Um, but learning to understand and acknowledge it for, not just trying to be fit and healthy, but taking care of my brain and like my emotional and mental space, uh, I feel really, feel really grateful for. And again, like understanding like, okay, I'm going to go work out for fitness sake, or I'm going to go work out or exercise for mental sake. And just being like, okay, maybe, to, you know, like maybe today it's like, I'm going to take my daughter on a 30 minute walk. That's not like hammering on my bike that I really want to go do, but like I'm outside, I'm moving and it's just acknowledging it as a way, as a space to like take care of myself has been really helpful. And I feel, I feel grateful to like be able to acknowledge that. Yes. A hundred percent.
I think it's funny when you talk to people and they're like, oh, no, I don't work out. Like, I hate the gym. Well, like, you don't actually, like, have to go to the gym. And also, that's probably just, like, the wrong way you're looking at it. Like, I'm not saying that, like, you have to go to the gym because you're going to be, like, you know, go to Muscle Beach and, like, show off or anything. Like, it has really nothing to do with your overall physical appearance. I mean, it can be if that's the route that you want to take. But ultimately, like, as a human being, like... Physical fitness is is the key to optimal performance, not just, of course, physically, but really mentally and how you want to continue to process daily life. If you're, if you're getting flustered and upset, like, and, and I take a look at you and you're like, oh, yeah, like, you don't work out, that you, that you have no release or anything. Plus, like, for meals, like, oh, okay, like, you want to have that cheeseburger every day, like, I'm I can probably point out like very obvious things of like you're not getting the right fuel. And this is not like a, a podcast about diet by any means. Like correct. Eat, eat whatever you correct. want in moderation. Yes. But if you want to talk about like fueling your, your mind and fueling your soul, there are certain routes that you need to take to put into your body and to make your body act in order to get those results that you're looking for. You can address it too. I, I'm not nearly qualified enough to speak to like the actual things, but from a science standpoint, exercise, like the chemicals that it releases in your brain help make you happy. Like that it, it doesn't, again, it doesn't, you don't have to be training for a half marathon or a 10K or anything. Like just going out and like moving and helping your body release those chemicals that will help your brain function better is it it's it's a way that you can look at it that it doesn't it doesn't have no i'm not trying to go to muscle beach i'm not trying to like have washboard abs and all of these things like i'm just trying to go out and like move a little bit to take care of my body and my mind in a way that is there i mean there are people out there that could explain the science yes. and it's you can't argue with at it at a certain point in my life though i would say yeah like i'd do anything out those washboards abs back i don't know what happened yes my, my- Yes. My, my early 30s did wonders on my body when all of a sudden all these injuries and everything else started catching up. And you're like, wow, what? Like, what is happening here? Like, where is this I'm, going? I'm from? changing so much. I appreciate you. We're going to have to do part two and talk about golf. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, for the listeners, like, you know, we have got a, a friendly, friendly wager out there. We got to figure out what the, what the terms are, but, uh, you have to hit Blair up on that. Blair's the one that's trying to uh, coordinate and arrange all this stuff. I'm sure he's going to be asking for a boatload of strokes here coming up. Who knows? For sure. For sure. Do you know how many strokes I'm going to get? What's your, <laughs> what's your cream? I don't know what you're playing to, but I'm going to take every one of those I can get. I've seen that swing of yours. That uh, thing is dialed. Very, um, very good. But yeah, we got to figure out the stakes. We're going to have you and, and uh me and ben hollywood ben oh yeah hoteling oh yeah it's gonna be yeah it's gonna be a battle the the two two man i had to figure out the format too two man best ball you know maybe nine best ball nine alt shot that's good figure out some way to get out there but i'm excited we'll figure it out we'll figure out what the stakes are gonna be and then uh we'll report back but before that we got to talk about golf because I know this isn't just like a new passion of yours. This has been interwoven in your entire life. Um, and I think it's something that we talk about. Like, it, it's not like, again, the next chapter. It is just a part of you. Yeah. 
Um, I, I credit golf. I, I started golf at a very young age. My grandfather got me into the game. He played. Um, he, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. Um, he was very like by the book. When you met, when you introduced yourself, you shook hands three times, always made eye contact. Your shirt was always tucked in on the golf course. You never ran on the greens. You didn't talk in someone's swing. And then also, like, when he became a grandparent, like, maybe when we got to the third or fourth hole, he let me drive the golf cart when I wasn't supposed to. And, like, uh, I just, yeah, I, I learned golf at a, at a very young age. Um, my parents, you know, played. They weren't that into it. Um, going back, when I when I had that job out of high school, I worked at a, as a bellman at a hotel in Manchester, Vermont. They had an 18-hole course, and I, I could go out and play for free. And that was sort of when, like, the, the spark for golf reignited. I was an athlete and I, I figured it out. I haven't, re- I t- took some lessons a couple years ago, but I'm mainly self-taught. And then again, like as I got into onto the national team and I started traveling, golf sort of fell by the wayside. And one of my summer jobs, I, I worked in Oklahoma city. I was, uh, I worked in, was a project manager for a storm restoration company and I was grinding like 60 hours a week. And all of a sudden I found out that I could go and play twilight golf for less than it cost to go see a movie. It was like seven fifty to play after whatever 6 p.m in in oklahoma city and i was like whoa like i actually like really love this game and so as an adult i got back into it and then again i lived in colorado for 10 years um i think i probably played like five or six rounds of golf while i lived like in colorado while i lived there um i moved to salt lake city uh 2017 i live two blocks from a golf course that cost 13 dollars to go walk nine holes and i was like man, this, this golf thing is pretty sweet. And, and guess what? Like I can go and compete. I race in the, in my off season, I race bikes. I'm a, a big cyclist. Um, I can go and compete on a daily basis and it doesn't absolutely like destroy my body and wear me down in the way that like cycling did took away from my training. And, um, 2017, I got invited with the U S Olympic committee to go to Bandon Dunes. Um, I went to Bandon for five, four days, five, three or four days with a bunch of other athletes and a bunch of big wig donors. Um, Mike Kaiser, fortunately a donor to the U S Olympic committee. He gives the, gives us some space to go out there. And like, let me tell you 2017 golf just sunk its hooks into me. That's when I found no laying up, you know, I started listening to the podcast then. And, um, I just, I felt that's, I, I started, you know, it's the first time I've ever had a handicap in my life. And I, I love the game of golf because it's a way that I can go out and compete on a, as often as I want. I can compete against a course. I can compete against my buddies. Um, and I just, I love, I love that. I love that. Ask. I'll go out and play like twilight six holes by myself, nothing on the line. I'm just trying to be better than I was, was the day before. And there are times I can go out and appreciate the social aspect of it. I I and that guy, I do not mind being the random single in a group. I'll go out and just enjoy the social aspect of golf. Like I have some of my some of my great friends now I've met through the game and I'm really grateful for, but I just I love the constant pursuit of excellence. And in golf that's that's a that's every round. You're just trying to go out and beat beat your last round, beat yourself and God, is it is it a great game? I love it. Everything about it. Cannot wait to tee it up with you too. It'll be, you know, I as you mentioned, I've I've been out. At Big Randy was a partner of mine out in Denver, a little two man game. He's 
maybe didn't bring my best to carry the big guy around. <laughs> I feel I feel I feel some guilt there. Uh, he saw a few hosel rockets, but it's the game's trending in the right direction. I'm I'm excited. Um, have a part. You know, we we share. You know, no laying up family and myself share a, a, a sponsor. That's right. Um, I'm working with uh, with OGO, and they're owned by Callaway. And as part of my contract with OGO, I was like, hey, like you guys are owned by Callaway. I would love to come down and you know go to the facility and, and do a fitting so that's on the schedule now I'm check out carlsbad get all the toys yes do the full i'm a huge nerd when it comes to all that stuff like love to see all the numbers and go down for a fitting and it's just i'm i'm grateful for the game of golf because as I, as I get older and my body starts to break down i can't compete in a lot of the things that i've always competed in and it gives me an opportunity to go out and just keep score and you don't have to like the, I, I love the game of golf because I'll go out and without a scorecard, I'll go out with buddies and hit and giggle, whatever it is. But for me, what I love about the game of golf is the pursuit of just being a little bit better than I was the last round. Could not have said it better myself. Alex, thank you so much for the time. We got to get you on again. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Thank you, Cody. I appreciate you. I appreciate, thank you for your service. I want to say like, we didn't really get into it. I've done a lot of work with, you know, as an athlete with some, some military, um, did some, some cool stuff with the USO. I got to go on the, on the field, uh, an army air force football game, like, you know, lead, lead some of that stuff. Got to meet, um, you know, some four-star generals, joint chiefs of staff, um, all the, all the important people. And, and I will say one of the things that I got to do, I did work with American tours 300. They, uh, go out and support active duty military. And I did a lot. I did a, a number of base visits throughout the United States and they were as far from grip and rip. That's what, that's what he, you know, Rob, Rob who, who founded it. He's like, I don't like grip and rip, you know, like we go out. I did, I did PT with the Marines. I did um, a ruck run with the military sniper school. Um, like it was like it, you get in there and you get dirty. I put on bomb suits and I got to like meet active duty military and share my story and thank them. And, um, certainly don't come from the industry the way you do, but I, I do want to like, just, just offer gratitude because I appreciate you. I appreciate all of our service members and everything that you've done. Um, it's, it's real special and it's, it's very much appreciated from this side. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cody. I appreciate it. Have a good one.